Hey, good morning, Moraine. How we doing? All right, I hope so. I actually believe you this week, so we're, we're on good terms. Hey, uh, I get, uh, I'm, I'm real excited this morning. Some of you at this point are starting to wonder what I do around here. I haven't preached for a couple weeks. Uh, this is, uh, this week I, I'm also not preaching, but it is my privilege uh, to, uh, this will, for most of you, this will not be a new uh, introduction, uh, but for some of you, if you've been here new in the last couple months, uh, you may not know what God's been doing at Moraine for a long time. And uh, last fall, right around the end of October, uh, our uh, uh, senior pastor, Pat Peglo, retired, uh, went into a personal sabbatical, and uh, just rejoined us, him and Kim, in, in the congregation about a month ago. And uh, this morning, I have the uh, privilege of uh, introducing some of you, but welcoming some of you. And would you join me in welcoming Pat Peglo uh, to share the word this morning? Thanks, Don. Thank you, Moraine. It's, uh, I don't know what it's like to be back. I feel like the tin man from the Wizard of Oz and trusting that the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit will grease me up and free me up to be able to preach again. It's been a while. So uh, thanks, Don, for the privilege of allowing me to do this. You know, a number of years ago, when Kim and I first moved down to Dallas, we were looking for a new church. Huh. Okay, I guess this thing is a little bit wobbly, but looking for a new church. And we're visiting around, and one Sunday morning we showed up at a church, and the pastor was speaking about the attitudes of the Pharisees. And I was stunned as I was sitting there listening to him, as the Spirit of God spoke to my heart and said, Pat, you're a Pharisee. I was so convicted, and this is no exaggeration, I literally could not speak for three hours. I remember going to breakfast afterwards with Kim at our normal breakfast place across the street from the Dr. Pepper plant there in Dallas, and my head was down. But every five minutes, I looked at my head and said, I can't believe it. I'm a Pharisee. You know, I share that with you this morning because the people that Jesus was speaking to that morning on the mount or afternoon or evening, I'm not sure if it tells us which it was, but as Jesus was speaking to the people on the mount, he was speaking to a group of people that all of their spiritual education and learning would have came from people like the Pharisees. How do you enter into the kingdom of God? How do you walk with God? What does righteousness look like was all shaped primarily by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees emphasized external behavior to the disregard of really what was going on in the heart. So there wasn't a congruence between their external behavior and what was happening into their hearts. Listen to the way Jesus described the Pharisees. Matthew 23, Jesus is using a whole chapter to talk about them, and he said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, 
but on the inside are full of dead men's bones. And all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is what the Pharisees were like. And it's important to understand that this morning because now you get the feel of what those people listening to Jesus must have experienced as Jesus was bringing a perspective that was a hundred miles away from what they heard from the Pharisees. You see, he wasn't talking about external behavior modification. Jesus was talking about the internal disposition of the heart. And that's a whole different ball game. The Beatitudes really are a picture. They're a picture that Jesus is drawing for the people of what it's like to be a member of God's kingdom. For us today, not only a member of God's kingdom, but a follower of Jesus. And as Don has so well captured the word blessed for us, he's really giving them a picture of the good life. This is where the good life can be found. It's found in living from the heart. And there's a structure that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes as he starts off this Sermon on the Mount. And the structure is very simple. You see it in every Beatitude. He starts with a declaration of blessedness. This is where the good life is found. Then he moves to a virtue of the heart that a person has. And I'll even say when he talks about being persecuted for righteousness, he's talking about a person that's so dedicated to Jesus, they're willing to be persecuted. So he moves them to the virtue of the heart, but then he always closes, he has the word for. He gives them the reason why they're blessed. So the structure of every one of these Beatitudes is very simple. A declaration of blessing, a virtue of the heart, and the reason why that virtue of the heart is blessed. And this morning, we're going to look at chapter 5, verse 6. If you have your Bibles, turn to that. And we're going to be looking at the beatitude where Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed because that will be satisfied. Listen as I read Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And what I'm going to try to do this morning as we look at this passage, we open it up, I'm going to try to answer three questions. What is righteousness? Second of all, how is that righteousness satisfied? How is it fulfilled? How's that hunger for righteousness fulfilled? Finally, let's take a look at ourselves. How's our hunger for righteousness doing? That's what we're going to close this morning. So starting with what is righteousness? You know what? I, uh, the word is used 619 times in both the Old Testament and New Testament. I looked up every reference to it. That's what happens when you preach once every four to five months. Get a little extra time to look into things a little deeper. 
So I looked at every reference to righteousness in the Bible. I looked at various different Hebrew and Greek dictionaries as to what righteousness is defined as. And I'm gonna summarize it with these two key thoughts. First of all, it's being in a right relationship with God. Righteousness is used in scripture about being in a right relationship with God. But it's also used another way and it's living in conformity with the standard that God has set up. Those are the two primary uses of right. Once in a while it's used for the idea of justice, the application of righteousness. But it's primarily used about our relationship with God and being in a right relationship with him and living in conformity with the standard that he has set up and he requires of us. Now, righteousness is a generic term. It's a general term that captures a lot of different things. What I mean by that, we saw the first week from Don, those who, uh, those who are poor in spirit. You can identify specifically that, what that means. They're lacking the resources spiritually that God is calling them to, and so they're depending on Jesus for that. That's a very specific thing. Then Dan shared with us about mourning and grieving over our sins. Very specific. You can identify what that means. Dick Ron, thank you, brother. You blessed my heart last week so well. With gentleness and what that looks like. And what you find is that righteousness captures all those words, all the virtues in the Beatitudes, really captures all the instructions in the Sermon on the Mount, and really in the Bible, when it talks about attitudes, thinking, behavior, heart dispositions, talk, fill in the blank, all of those fit into this general term of righteousness. So when Jesus is speaking here, he's speaking bigger than a specific attitude or disposition. It's a hungering for all of those that God longs for us to be. So, Warren Wiersbe says this. Warren said that the whole Sermon on the Mount is really, the, the, the topic, the subject is righteousness. Chapter six gives us the picture of righteousness. Chapter seven talks about the practice of Jesus. He says, you know, when you practice your righteousness. So he moves into practices of righteousness and what that should look like. Then in the next chapter, he moves into proofs that a person is righteous. This is how you can tell whether you are righteous or not. The whole sermon is about that. And look at verse 20 in Matthew chapter 5, because after Jesus goes through the Beatitudes and says a few more things, he says this. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, wait a minute. These are, these are their teachers. These are the ones they look up to. These are their religious people. These are the most spiritual people they know. And Jesus is saying, guys, if you're not better than them, you're never going to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus goes into an explanation about what the law says and how the Pharisees and the scribes emphasize the external behaviors of the law and what Jesus says 
and how he pushes to the much deeper meaning of the heart disposition that those laws are going after. He talks about, you know, he shall not murder. He says, even if you hate your brother or sister, you're guilty of murder. So you shouldn't commit adultery. Well, even if you lust for a person in your heart, you're committing adultery. So Jesus is taking the external behavior they've been learning from the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's pushing much deeper to a heart disposition. And he summarizes this, this whole chapter of this picture of righteousness in verse 48 at the end of chapter 5. And listen to what he says. Therefore, you are to be perfect. Could perfectly drop the water. Susan, you're awesome. It would be good to, let me see what we can do here. Thanks. Let me know if we ruin your phone. Thank you, Susan, so much, and Don. Where was I? Oh, you know what? Look at what Jesus is saying. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wait a minute. <laughs> the Pharisees' external behavior, Jesus goes down to the disposition of the heart. Then he says, your, be, your righteousness has to surpass that which you've learned from your spiritual leaders. Now he starts to say, guess what, guys? You need to be as righteous as the perfect God. Perfection. We often call it holiness. You are to be as righteous as God. God himself is the standard of righteousness. I'm going to give you my definition after all this and how I define righteousness and it's simply like this. Righteousness is walking in alignment with who God is, because he's the standard, and what he's required of us as revealed in the Bible. So God the standard has spoken his word in his heart and recorded it in the word, and, and what we do is when we live in alignment with who God is and what he says, we're living righteously. You know, um, there's two synonyms that I'd like to use for righteousness. Godly is one. <laughs> you gotta be as perfect as the Father, be God-like. Godly would be a synonym for righteousness. Uh, I like what Isaiah, I'm gonna throw in a third one, Isaiah 5, 6 says this. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. It's in righteousness where God shows his holiness. And so what we find here is that to be holy, to be godly, to be Christ-like are synonyms with being righteous. That's what it means. So Jesus really saying this, you guys, guys you're not gonna enter into heaven <laughs> unless you're as perfect as God is is you're as righteous as Jesus. And he says to walk with God, you need to live in conformity with what the righteous God puts in his word. Let me show you two verses that help us see this. 
Psalm, 1, Psalm 11, 7 says this, the, the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. God is righteous. That's who he is. God is righteous. We love to talk about God is love and he is love. And, but God is also righteous and God is holy. In Psalm 119, 123 says this, my eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Pete, put up that description I have here of this. The righteous words of scripture will never contradict the righteous God. Who authored those words? If a righteous God authored the words of this book, the words he put in this book are righteous words. And the righteous words of this book will never contradict the righteous God. And so in many ways as we read this book, as it's preached to us weekly by Don, as we hear it in sermons, read it in books, the word of God becomes the level which God uses to put against my heart to say, is my heart is my heart level? Is it right? Is it in conformity with God? Does it have to move here or there to get a little bit more in line? It, 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 it's the level I put on my speech and what I say to say, is this righteous speech? Is this match what God says is in his word? I put it that level against my thinking and I say, you know what? Are my thoughts consistent with God's thoughts? What do I have to do to get it level? You know, you put against my feet where I go, put against my hands, the activities, what I do. The point is, is that a righteous God reveals to us what a righteous life looks like in his word. And that's the measurement that we could use against ourselves to see how we're doing. So now we know what righteousness is. How... Because look at what, back at what this verse said, Matthew 5, 6. He said this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. How does God satisfy this hunger for righteousness? That's the question we have to answer now. You know, uh, this word satisfied, some of your Bibles say filled. We get a little help from the Greek. And um, I don't want to pull out the big Greek stuff on you, but it's so important that we get this word right. The vo there's a lot of different things that are a part of the Greek. But there's a thing called the voice that you learn about words. The voice talks about Who's performing the action from the subject of the sentence point of view? So it gives us clues into who's performing the action. So the active voice says that Pat, the subject, is acting upon somebody over here. The middle voice says this, Pat, the subject, is acting upon himself. The passive voice that we see in this passage says this, Pat, the subject, is being acted upon by somebody else. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Pat hit Pastor Don. Now, Don just, he just shook his head. He laughed. It, no big deal. It's kind of like the Pillsbury Doughboy hitting a brick house. 
You know, and he just kind of, he just kind of laughed it off. But now the doughboy is hitting himself when he gets his hand lost in the stomach, you know? And it's just, that, that's, that's the middle voice. The doughboy's hitting himself. Now the passive means this. The brick house just hit Pat. But actually you should say it this way because I'm the subject. Pat was hit by the brick house. And Pat felt it. He didn't just shake it off. That's the difference between these. So let me tell you what we learned from that. Jesus is not telling people in the middle or the active voice that I'm giving you the big why. You know, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness and if you yourself do the work and work hard enough that, let me slap back, you will get there. So just be encouraged. Keep at it. Keep going. You'll make it. That is not what Jesus is saying at all. Because when satisfied's in the passive tense, Jesus is not giving them a big motivation. Why? He's giving a big promise that he himself will satisfy that desire. Many of the Greek scholars call this, and Kim told me, be careful, so I'll try to be careful, baby. They call this the God passive. By God passive, you know, I'm reading through it, and I never heard of that before, but as I read it, I saw more than one refer to that. The God passive, it doesn't mean that God is passive. It means that God is the one who's acting upon the subject. And in this particular passage, it's God who satisfies that hunger and that desire to be righteous. So how does God do this? How does God make us and satisfy that desire to be as righteous as God himself. How does God satisfy the desire for us to be holy? How does God satisfy the desire for us to be Christ-like and godly? How does God satisfy that desire for my life to be in conformity with what his word says? How How do I live a life where I'm hungering and more for Jesus, the righteous one, to be a big part of my life. How does God do that? How does God satisfy a righteousness that surpasses well beyond that of the spiritual leaders of that day or today? How does God satisfy a desire that we be perfect, as righteous and holy as God himself? One well, I suggest three things. I put them up here, PowerPoint, so you can follow along. First of all is what's called imputed righteousness. This deals with those who don't know Jesus. Imputed righteousness is when the Father credits the very righteousness of Jesus to those who are not members of his kingdom when they put their trust in Jesus. Do you hear that? <laughs> I can never be as righteous as Jesus, but guess what? God gives me Jesus' righteousness as a gift. He credits it to my account. It's what's called salvation. When God declares me righteous, he hides me in Christ. He clothes me with Christ. And so when God looks at me, what does he see? Well, if I'm hidden, he sees Jesus. If I'm clothed with Christ, he sees Jesus. And so what he's seeing now when he looks at me is the righteousness of Jesus that God gives us as a gift as he declares us 
righteous. That's imputed righteousness. How does he satisfy that? For those who don't know Jesus, they have a hunger and say, man, I, I, I want to enter into God's kingdom. I need that righteousness. Well, for those who are believers, there's what we call imparted righteousness. That's when the Holy Spirit infuses Christ's righteousness into the member of God's kingdom as they trust him moment by moment. That's what we call sanctification. That's where the Spirit of God is, who lives in me is working in me moment by moment, chipping away all those rough edges to personally, practically, and progressively make me more righteous day by day as he infuses the very life of righteousness of Jesus into me. So when we hunger and thirst as believers for more of that life, it's the Spirit of God that imparts it to us. But there's a third kind, and don't look this up because I made up this word. It's called imperial righteousness. Somebody say, I've never heard of that before. I know you haven't. This is what imperial righteousness is. When Jesus, the righteous one, reigns as king in a future kingdom that will be characterized by righteousness. Again, that's something that God does. So to those who don't know Jesus, he imputes the righteousness of Jesus. To those who know Jesus, want more, he imparts the righteousness of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Those that are longing for a greater kingdom in some future world where righteousness is reigning, the righteous king himself will reign over a kingdom that's characterized by righteousness. So how's your righteousness today? God's got a promise out there for you and me. <laughs> If you got that desire, if you got that hunger going on in your heart and that thirst for this righteousness, God promises he will fulfill it. Now I want to speak first of all to those of you who don't know Jesus. You may be here this morning and you recognize that you're separated from God. God. I don't even know where, my, where I am in my notes, but we'll find it. Yeah. You're here this morning saying, you know what? I don't know Jesus. And I know I'm not one of his children, but I want to know him. I long to know him. I want to tell you that is some of the best news in the world this morning. You need to understand this. Listen to what Romans 3, 10 and 11 says. It says this. It is written, there is none who is righteous... Who's as righteous as God? Obviously none of us. There's none who's righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Well, guess what? If you're hungry and thirsting, you're seeking. Aren't you? Doesn't that produce a seek? There's nobody who's righteous. There's nobody who seeks for God. But listen to what Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Did you hear that? No, wait a minute, got it. There's no one who's righteous. There's nobody who is as righteous and perfect as God the Father and Jesus. But he says this, there's nobody who even seeks him unless 
the Father draws him. God's doing something in their heart. God's creating a hunger within them. I want to know more. I want this relationship with God. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, but you long to know him, this is great news because God is working in you. That's not something you produce. That's not something you drummed up. Nobody seeks God. Nobody comes to Jesus unless God the Father does something from the inside that draws them to want to go to Jesus. So how do I get that imputed righteousness? You know, I got that hunger. I got that thirst. God's working in me. I want to know more. I've been learning more. I'm interested. How, How does this happen? How does God impute? Well, I think Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, he made him, he is the father, made him who knew no sin. Who's the only one that didn't know sin? That's Jesus, right? So God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the cross. God made Jesus, the righteous, holy, perfect one, to be sin on the cross. Whose sin? My sin and your sin. He took my sin and your sin in our place as our substitute so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The greatest trade of all time took place at the cross. Jesus got our sins and he paid the penalty. He shed his blood. He died for my sins and yours. But in exchange, we get his righteousness. That's what the cross is all about. God deals with our falling short of his holy righteous standard by having Jesus pay the penalty and because we could never be good enough. He gives us as a gift the very righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of God. Listen to the way Philippians says it. Philippians chapter 3 says it this way. Paul says, it may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, not trying to be good enough, religious enough, go to church, uh, give, get in a small group, you know, fill in the blank. It's not a matter of not having a righteousness of my own that's derived by the law, trying to do all the things that God wants me to do, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, but there's a hunger and a thirst in your heart, God's got a promise for you. He will impute to you the very righteousness of Jesus if you will turn from yourself and all your efforts to try to get better and you turn to Jesus and what he did for you on the cross and you accept that in your place. You know what? This is the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, you come and say, you know what, God? I can never be as righteous as Jesus. Isn't that what poor in spirit does? I lack the resources to be the righteous, as righteous as you long for me to be. It's poor in spirit. I'm a mourn over that. Lord, I don't want that. 
I hate, I need you. I'm going to turn to Jesus in repentance and say, I'm turning from myself and all my efforts, and I'm going to turn to what Jesus did for me on the cross, and I'm going to take that righteousness that comes from God through Jesus and what he did for me because I'm not going to trust myself anymore. I'm going to quit trying to be better, and I'm putting all my trust in Jesus Christ. And I call out to him and say, Lord, I'm poor in spirit. I'm helpless. There's nothing I can do for myself. Jesus, only Jesus. Heard a sermon once like this. I can't. Only Jesus can rely on Jesus. And that's what we have to do if you don't know him today. Now, for those that are here today and say, I know Jesus. And I got a hunger and a thirst as well. And I want to become more Christ-like. And I want to become more godly. And I want to become more holy. And I want more of the Holy One himself in my life. Well, listen to what Philippians 2, 12 and 13 say. So then, my beloved, speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ, just as you have always obeyed. What's obedience? Living my life in conformity with God's word. Isn't that? That's righteous. It's righteous living. You know what, God? He's saying here, just as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. Both to will, that's to desire, that's the hunger and thirst, and to work for his good pleasure. That's the fulfillment of the desire, both to will and to do, both to will and to work. That's to be satisfied. That's the promise. You hunger for it. Where'd that hunger come from? Just like the person who doesn't know Jesus, it came from God. Where does the hunger come from? The believer it comes from God. Because God's working in your heart to create in you a desire so that I desire what God desires of me. And when I turn to him and trust him to do that in me, he does the work in me, day by day by his spirit, to chip away the Pat Peglo stuff and the fleshly stuff and the worldly stuff and to build more into me the Jesus stuff. And you might be here today and say, you know, I'm a believer. And to be honest with you, I don't have a desire to become more like Jesus. Or maybe you just got a little spark going and the fire has been dying out. I want to suggest one of two things. Either you've grieved the Holy Spirit of God or you quenched the Holy Spirit of God. When you go to Ephesians 4, you can read more about what it means to grieve the Spirit of God there. But what happens is there's certain sins that we commit that break God's heart. And we learn in the scripture that when God's heart is broken, there's something of the spirit of God in his working that just kind of is quenched and slows down in our life. And he mentions sins there that grieve the spirit like bitterness, anger, slander, unforgiveness, Greed, lying, lust, and the list goes on and on with things like this. All of these have got the ability to grieve and quench the work of the Spirit of God in our life. But it's not only just doing bad things like this. There can be good things in our lives 
that have become the center of our life rather than Jesus. That's what an idol is. That's when you take something else and it takes the place of God. And there's some people who the spirit has been grieved because guess what? Now your family is more important to you than Jesus and walking with him. Your children's activities have become what you've now building your life around rather than Jesus. Could be all the way to your house or keeping a clean house and an orderly house or it, it, it could be your to-do list or your, to bu- your bucket list. It could be working out. It could be your education, it could be your job, it could be anything. All these things are good things. But when a good thing comes up here and God moves down here, this good thing is now an idol. And I'm building my life around and finding my value and my joy around these things rather than God. That grieves the Spirit of God. That quenches the work of the Spirit of God in our life. So it's possible that if that fire has dimmed down, it's not there, it's because of some sin in your life that has taken over and quenched the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about quenching the Spirit. And you know what he talks about here? It isn't things that you're doing that are sinful and wrong. There are things you're not doing that are good. And it's kind of like a fire. The spark is going down. And you know, I got to throw another piece of wood on there. I got to fan the fire. I got to throw some more twigs on. You know, in other words, there's good things we should be doing that feed the fire of the Holy Spirit. And first lesson you find, we're talking about rejoicing always. Are you a complainer? Are you negative? Is that your disposition and spirit? If that is, you're, gonna, you're, you're, you're taking wood out of the fire. You're not, you're not feeding the fire of the Spirit. Praying without ceasing. Not just your whole disposition is constantly saying, Lord, I need you, and talking to him and calling upon him. Giving thanks in everything. And finally receiving God's word. You know what? If you're here this morning, you're a believer and you see that that desire for God and godliness and righteousness has just really diminished or gone out, I want to encourage you to open up your heart to God. Because God is the one who puts in the desire. God is the one who promises to fulfill it. And this morning you need to come back to him and say, Father, God, I have quenched the spirit of God in my life through this sin or this lack of activity of feeding what you're doing in my life. Lord, Open my heart, confess it, invite the Spirit of God who lives in you to impart that very righteousness within you. And here's one final one. There may be some here today. You're just longing for a world. I'd love to live in a world where there's righteousness. You know, that's the culture we're living in, the world we're living in. And we're longing so much for a righteous world. A second here. There are a couple things I want to say about that. So what happens, we know, Rusty, the tin man, Don, right here. Don't even know where my notes are. But we're longing in a world, for a world where righteousness and justice prevails. So many of us just long for that. You know, in, in Isaiah 5.20, he says this. He says, woe to those who call good evil 
and call evil good. Isn't that the world we're living in today? You look around and they're saying, hey, you know what? I know God says in his standard, his righteous standard, he says this is evil, but we say it's good. That's the kind of world we're living in now. In Ecclesiastes 3.16, it says this. He looked in the place of justice and he found wickedness. He looked in the place of righteousness and he found wickedness. You know, he didn't say, I, I looked in, in place of justice, I found wickedness. I looked in the place of justice. That's the court systems. I believe that's what he's saying. So I'm looking into this, the, the, the world and the court systems. This is, this is what Ecclesiastes was saying, the preacher. Solomon, he says, I'm looking into the system of justice and I'm finding wickedness. The place of righteousness. Guys, I think that's the church world. And aren't we seeing a world today, even the church, don't be conformed by the world as it's trying to squeeze you into its mold and so much more. The church now is looking more and more like the world as we're being squeezed more and more into its mold. And this is what he says, I'm looking at a, at a church and I'm looking for righteousness. And there's wickedness even in the, the places where the church is supposed to be. Well, I got good news for you. That's where imperial righteousness comes. Listen, that's, remember, imperial That's when the righteous king himself, Jesus, will reign over a kingdom that's characterized by righteousness. That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. Listen to Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's Christmas, the first coming of Jesus. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. You're longing and hungering for that. There's a day coming. will establish and hold it with just and righteous from then on and forevermore. And look at this. Who's gonna, is that going to come because we somehow prepare the world for it? No. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God himself will accomplish this. I got a great promise for you this morning. Blessed. Happy. A sense of well-being. The good life is found when you have a heart disposition that hungers and thirsts for God's righteousness because God himself will satisfy that desire. Father, I just pray, would you, would your Holy Spirit take your word this morning and speak to every one of us right where we're at? God, you're the source of everything we need. And I just pray this morning that you will move in this place. You will speak to those who don't know you. You'll speak to those who do. And God, that you will apply by your Holy Spirit some things that last forever. We know whatever God does lasts forever. God, we're inviting you to make eternal changes within us today for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.